Hello and welcome to Beth Kuhn and this series called Spiritual Seasons. With this group of teachings, we are delving into the weekly Torah portions through the lens of the overall calendar. This week we are in Parsha Ki Tavo, Deuteronomy 26 through the first verses of 29. But before we get into the portion, I want to share one last story of generosity for the month of Elul, which is a month in which we are encouraged to increase in our tzedakah. So this story is a little bit longer, uh, but I've shortened it some, and it comes from the Chabad.org website. It's about the famous and rather mysterious Rothschild family. The Rothschilds weren't always among the planet's wealthiest people. In the 1700s, the family was not wealthy at all. Modern Jews attribute their vast affluence to God's blessing through the grandfather of the five brothers who would go on to found the international banking empire. Their grandfather was named Amshel Moses Rothschild, and here is the story that they tell about him. In the early 1700s, Amshel was the assistant to the local rabbi in a town that is now in western Ukraine. His duties included running errands, handing the rabbi seferim, like books or scrolls, when he was studying, and taking care of visitors who came to see the rabbi, among other responsibilities. It wasn't a job that paid a lot, but Amshel was a young man at the time, and he was anxious to serve the great rabbi. The rabbi came to trust and rely on him, and Amshel became like part of the family. Eventually, though, Amshel got married and had to end his service to the rabbi and moved to a nearby town where he opened a small store. Well, after some months, the rabbi discovered that a purse with 500 silver coins had been stolen from his personal desk. It was a sizable amount, and it was meant to go to orphans and widows and others whose savings had been left in trust with the rabbi. The rabbi thought of all those poor people, and he was filled with pain. The only person who he could think of that would have known about the money was Amshel. He thought to himself, no no doubt Amshel only wanted to borrow the money in connection with his marriage last winter, and he must have planned to repay it as soon as he could. So the rabbi went to see Amshel in his little store, It was a a humbling surprise for Amshel to see the rabbi in his simple place of business. The rabbi carefully told Amshel of the missing money, but assured him that he did not suspect him of theft. He realized that he had merely borrowed the money. And though the borrowing wasn't kosher either, if he would make good the wrong, he would be forgiven. And the rabbi wouldn't hold it against him either. He went on to tell him about the orphans and the widows and the other poor people who were depending on the money. Amshel grew pale and frightened, and he started to cry. Without saying anything, he opened his cash register and emptied its contents, giving it to the rabbi. He begged the rabbi to stay while he went to find more money, though he returned looking quite distressed, since he only had half the amount. He promised to faithfully make up the balance in installments. True to his word, Amshel regularly sent small amounts until the whole 500 goldens, the word for the silver coins, 
were fully repaid and the rabbi dismissed the whole affair. Until one day the rabbi got a message that the, the police chief wanted him to uh, come in so that he could talk to him. The chief asked the rabbi if anything had been stolen from him recently. He answered that if the chief was referring to a large number of silver coins, the matter was already taken care of. It was resolved. Well, the chief looked surprised and asked the rabbi to tell him what happened. And so the rabbi told him what happened. The chief shook his head and said, you Jews are a wonderful people. He then opened a drawer and produced the very bag of coins that was missing. The money had been discovered in the possession of the woman who cleaned the rabbi's house after this woman's husband started suddenly paying for bar tabs with silver coins, which aroused suspicion, leading to the searching of their home. Well, the rabbi wasted no time in returning to Amshel's store. Amshel, please forgive me, he said. Why didn't you tell me that you had not taken the money? Amshel told the rabbi that the plight of the poor orphans and the rabbi's own distress had touched his heart, and he determined that he could do something about it, but he knew that if he had denied the theft, the rabbi would not have accepted his sacrifice. The rabbi embraced him and blessed him as follows. He blessed him that he would have great riches and that he might always uh, be able to help the poor and needy of his people. He gave him the money back and he added, May God be with you and with your children for generations to come. Well, Amshel had five children who lived to adulthood, one of whom was named Meyer Amshel Rothschild, who would go on to found such a successful banking enterprise through his five sons that during the 19th century, the Rothschild family possessed the largest private fortune in modern world history. No one really knows how much um, that family was or is worth. And they have been very, very generous with the wealth. They even did much to establish the modern state of Israel and help Jews return to the land. Well, this story really touched my heart when I read it. More than the loss of the money, Amshel was willing to surrender his reputation in the eyes of the rabbi who he respected so much. It's like in a tiny moment of time, he weighed the choices before him, putting on one side the one side of the scale, his reputation and the large sum of money, and on the other side of the scale, the great pain of the poor and the rabbi, and he decided, I'll take the hit to my reputation and my wallet. These people need help, and I can help. And so he despised his reputation to help others. And God said, okay, you suffered that that little death for me, now I'm going to give you new life. And another point about this story, with our earthly way of operating, we know that you need money to make money. The little money we can scrounge together is what we supposedly use to put ourselves in a better position to make more money. And while this may be how the natural world works, indeed, the spiritual realm works differently. 
according to the higher law that supersedes the natural law. <clears throat> you give generously, and that giving becomes the open door for greater blessing. Well, I hope you've enjoyed these few snapshots and stories of generous people. We can be giving with any resources entrusted to us, including our time, our labor, and our knowledge. It's not only the money, but the giving of wealth also seems to be very high on God's list of priorities for us. <clears throat> and this brings us right to our portion, Kitavo, which begins with the bringing of first fruits to God at Jerusalem. So let's turn to the portion now. According to the Kihote Komish, Kitavo both ends the second main section of Deuteronomy, <clears throat> the second section which is focused on specific laws, a recitation of specific Torah laws, and it begins the third and final section of the book, which the Kihote Komish describes as being focused on the covenant between God and Israel. So, second section, specific laws, third section, covenant relationship with God. And Kitavo is split between the two. So, in finishing the legal matters of this part of Deuteronomy, Kitavo begins with laws regarding first fruits, as I just said, and in starting the second section, or the third section, rather, relating to covenant with God, um, the second part of Kitavo covers how the people are to renew the covenant once they get into the land under Joshua, right? So first fruits ends the laws, and um, the renewal of the covenant begins this whole covenant portion that ends Deuteronomy. So regarding the first fruits, which is called Bikurim, the Bikurim, the commandment is that when they get into the land, so both of these involve getting into the land, they are to bring first fruits of their harvest to the place God chooses to establish his name, which we know later becomes Jerusalem. And so an actual script is given to them in this portion to say, as they are presenting their first fruits to the priests, my father was a wandering Aramean and, and all of this. It's interesting that they're given an actual script to say, and then the portion uh, switches to a description of the covenant renewal that they are to perform also once they enter the land. They are to go to a very specific place in the land, the two mountains of Gerizim and Ebal. And so the town of Shechem sits in the middle of these um, two, in the valley there between these two very closely set mountains. And they're pretty tall, and Mount Ebal is, what is, a, is a taller mountain in, in Israel. And so, and um, Mount Gerrit seems only a couple hundred feet shorter. So, these, um, they are to set up these stones on Mount Ebal and plaster them, and they are to write on the stones the words of the Torah. They're to cut them very clearly, it says. And so, just by the way, the tradition is that it was written onto the stones in 70 languages. And Rabbi Trugman says this is because, ultimately, the Torah is meant for everyone. So, how do you like that? Quite an interesting comment coming from an Orthodox rabbi. And so, set up the stones, write the Torah on them, and then an altar is also to be built 
on Mount Ebal. So both of these are happening on Mount Ebal. And um, burnt offerings are to be offered. And the tribes, tribes are to be divided with six specifically named tribes on each mountain. So the tribes on Mount Gerizim are to pronounce blessings for obeying the Lord and carefully following the commandments. And the tribes on Mount Ebal are to answer with the curses for failing to do so. All the people are to indicate their assent as the blessing and then the curse is read out by saying, Amen. So all the people are participating in this covenant renewal. And um, the bulk of the portion actually ends up being the 98 curses because the curses section is much longer than the blessings. And so let's do a little more thinking now about how the portions are flowing here. We already kind of talked about three separate sections of Deuteronomy, and we're right here um, transitioning to the third section. But let's go a little deeper with how the portions are working together here. Why weren't these final specific commandments about first fruits included with the last portion, Kitetse? They would seem to fit better there. And so instead, the first fruit commandments are sort of made to be the introduction to the whole final section of Deuteronomy focused on the covenantal relationship with God. What does bringing first fruits have to do with relationship with God? Well, the answer is that mutual, at least one answer, is that mutual giving is the root of all healthy relationship. With first fruits, we admit that, um, that God gave to us, and now we thank him and give back to him. And so this third and final section of Devarim begins with first fruits commandments because covenantal relationship is all about giving. We are joined together by our giving to each other. And to the degree we're giving to others, to that degree, we will be one body with them. And to that degree, we have purpose as, as, a, as an organ in the body. And so two people can exist in the same house even, but do everything independently and not interact with each other at all. Those people don't really have a relationship. But if person A says, I'll get the groceries, and person B says, I'll mow the lawn, now they're serving each other, and they're leaning on each other, and they're becoming one body, echad. First fruits, even though it's the last of the listing of the commandments, is the perfect way to introduce the chapters focused on the covenant relationship between Israel and God. And so on this topic of giving being the root of a successful relationship, let me repeat the following idea that I believe I first heard from Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva Tatz, and it just really kind of blew my mind when I heard him say it. He says that if we focus on our rights in a relationship or in a country, we're setting ourselves up for disaster. But if we focus on our responsibilities in a relationship, that's bliss. If the husband and wife wake up each day saying, you know, what does my spouse owe me today? And 
and my rights in this marriage are such and such today, they will quickly find themselves in relationship hell. But if the two wake up and say, what are my obligations? What are my responsibilities to my spouse? How can I lighten the load a bit of my spouse today? That's relationship heaven. Rabbi Tatz points out that the Torah doesn't frame human interaction in terms of one's rights. The Torah is not talking about our rights. Of course, you know, well, the Torah instead focuses on our obligations. The Torah is all about obligation. What are our obligations? And so, of course, obligations imply rights. If I'm obligated to you, that means you have some kind of right by way of me that I need to provide to you or some right that I need to protect of yours. There are two sides of one coin, really, rights and obligations, but it's really a question of which side of the coin we're going to focus on. So living from the one perspective, the, the sort of taking perspective, what, what is due me, that leads to misery, while living from the other side leads to great purpose for our lives and joy. So do we focus on what we're owed or what our responsibilities are to those around us? And just kind of as an aside, it's impossible to go here, to, to not go here, really. How much of our political dialogue these days is focused on this person's rights and that person's rights? And where is it getting us? We're splitting apart as never before. In fact, we've had this focus on rights from our earliest days here in America with the Bill of Rights, for example. And so I'm not saying the Bill of Rights was a mistake. The problem, though, is that stating our rights and not really stating our responsibilities to the nation sets us up for the moment we're in now. It didn't happen right away because our founders had a keen sense of a person's responsibilities that are not written in the laws of the land. But that has faded over time. And so... When a culture has a bunch of people, I'm not saying everyone, but some, when, when a culture has a bunch of people sticking out their hand and demanding what is due them in a quote-unquote just society, but they're unwilling to contribute to that society, that's poison. It's toxic. Again, I'm not, talking, I'm not saying there's a huge amount of people who are doing this, but there's a lot. And so President Kennedy famously stated this idea when he said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And so that idea resonated so much with us as Americans because the idea of our obligations to our society was already slipping away by President Kennedy's time. It sounded so foreign to us when a president would say, don't ask about your rights, ask about your obligations. We're so focused on our rights that that was a kind of shocking statement to hear. And so it made a deep impression on the American psyche. We we hear that quoted all the time. And so, but it's not really sinking in, I'm afraid, (laughs) I think. As we turn now to um, thinking about where Kitavo fits into the calendar, let's first think about why God 
is sending Israel to this very specific geographic place to do this covenant renewal, these two mountains. The mountains themselves seem important to the event, but why? So in short, one reason I'm going to give now is that the mountains are the two required witnesses of the covenant. The Torah is written on the stones, on the land itself, and that's a kind of witness, that writing of the stones, on the stones, on the land. But even if those stones fail one day, if they are knocked over or their plaster comes off, um, which they have by this point, the two mountains have themselves seen and overheard everything that has passed between God and humanity at that place. Remember, the Torah requires that we need two witnesses to establish anything, um, two or three. And so the fact that the two mountains are so close to each other means that first the people can hear what is being spoken on both sides, and second the mountains can hear what is being spoken on both sides. The site where these two mountains occur together are also very near to the, to the center of the territory that God spells out for Israel, um, and which includes portions higher up, more north. Uh, it, it includes the Lebanon extending you know, um, a considerable distance up beyond where they actually end up conquering under Joshua. And so in a way, these two mountains are, they're kind of halfway between the Galilee and the Dead Sea. And so there they sit, um, almost in the middle of the land that God originally spells out for Israel. And so in a way, we can say that these two mountains are close to the heart of the territory originally allotted to Israel. And I mean the word heart in a biological sense. The heart is very near the middle of the torso, the human torso, which is considered the essential part of the human body. And so we'll talk about this idea of the heart being connected to this location a little bit more later. And Shechem, by the way, is where Abram built his first altar in the land uh, before he became Abraham even, right? We read about this in Genesis 12 where he's just come out of Ur and um, he stops there in Shechem and between these two mountains and he builds the first altar there to God. So there's something quite special and fundamental uh, about this place where the land witnesses just the whole breadth of the relationship unfold between God and his chosen people and between God and mankind, really. So if this idea of the mountains bearing witness sounds a bit romantic, listen to this short passage from Micah 6, which I happened to read this week. The prophet there says, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, And let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. And so, many things pass away, but those mountains are there. They're there to stay, you know. 
and so they can be an eternal witness in a way um, to what happens there. So let me make one quick and practical calendar connection here. We are in the process of tshuva now, repentance. What often happens with the resolutions for change that we make at times like these is that they simply fade away, right? How many New Year's resolutions, for example, have you just have just kind of drifted away? We forget. And our new habits slowly erode. So here we're seeing an example of one type of action we can take to help us stay on the path of change, that you know, change that we have decided upon. We establish a witness. Let me suggest that we talk about our resolutions that we're making now, our resolutions to change, that we talk about them with others, you know, when that's appropriate. And we purpose to hold each other accountable or that we at least write down um, and print out the changes that we are making now, that we are deciding to make and beginning to make. And what we can do with that printout, so either way, I think we should be printing out these um, these resolutions we're making now as we do Teshuvah. And maybe on the Moedim, make it a habit to take that piece of paper out and to review it. We are forgetful and life comes at us and Elul and Tishrei fade from our consciousness quickly as winter sets in. We need to be resourceful in remembering and reminding ourselves. So in this example here of what God tells them to do, as they get into the land, God has Israel march for days to a specific location, write the Torah on the stones. He tells them to divide up the people and have them speak out blessings and curses in the shadow of these mountains. And it's not a small thing he's having them do here. It's a creative and a memorable, and it takes some planning and it must have been very affecting for them. And so who even today could travel along the main road that runs between the two mountains? There's the, the main road that's kind of goes up to Jerusalem, really, runs between the two mountains of Gerizim and Ebal. And who could walk that road today and, and not hear the distant echoes of the blessings and the curses ringing out there in that valley. And so God has them do this very creative, um, tactile uh, memory device um, there. And um, we should try to do the same in our day. So there are a lot of layers um, for what Ebal and Gerritzim are picturing, and all of them apply to this moment in the calendar. So let's go a step deeper now. Um, We kind of talked about, I think, what what literally is happening there. But this portion is really showing us a wedding, if we go a step deeper here, a marriage ceremony to come under Joshua's leadership. So the blessings and the curses are the vows that the groom speaks out here and that the bride repeats while standing at the base of these mountains. And so we're seeing the groom write them under Moses and we're seeing the bride repeat them under Joshua. And 
what are we getting ready for that is about to happen in the calendar in Tishrei, right? We're reading about this wedding ceremony here in this portion. Well, we're getting ready for a marriage in Tishrei, our own marriage, in fact. Every year, we go through the whole marriage process with the Creator. We've talked about this before in the past some. And so, at the beginning of that, He sets us aside as a future bride at Passover. And then it moves on to the engagement at Shavuot, which is a binding covenant at that time. You know, the engagement was a binding covenant. And finally, we move on to the the last formalities and the consummation of the marriage in the fall, which is Tishrei. And so, let's look now at how this portion is looking ahead to that moment of marriage that is quickly approaching. What are we seeing in here about marriage? And so, we just said, we're looking at some vows. We're looking at a ceremony at Mounts Ebal and Gerizim. But believe it or not, the very first line of the portion is wedding language. But it's a different level of marriage than the scene at Ebal and Gerizim. So listen to the first line now and um, see if any kind of wedding language pops out at you. I mean, it won't really, but... (laughs) um, And it will be that when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it, and live in it. And then it goes on and talks about bringing the first fruits. And so, isn't that romantic? Um, Let's talk about it. Let's talk about how that is wedding language. So, there are some concepts here that are all over the scriptures. Concepts that I'm still a bit new at seeing in the text myself, but that I know are critical for going deeper in the Bible. And so we're going to see them illustrated here in this first line. And they are ideas that um, can not only open up the Bible in a new way for us, but they can speak very practically to us in our relationships and how we think about men and women, for example. And so let me mention that some of the details I'm about to go through are coming from a teaching by Rabbi Avraham Trugman, and I'll put a link to that teaching in the notes below. And so, the wedding that this first line is referring to is the wedding that happens between Israel and the land. And so, this is different but related to the wedding ceremony at Mounts Ebal and Gerasim. We're seeing reference then to two marriages here in this portion the beginning of a marriage relationship between Israel and the land, which is the name of this portion when you go into the land, and uh, the finalization. So on the one hand, that's the first marriage we're seeing. The second wedding that we're seeing is the finalization of a wedding between God and Israel. That happens at Mounts Gerizim and Ebal. We can call these two marriages the upper marriage and the lower marriage. So, the upper marriage is between God and Israel, and uh, the lower marriage is between Israel and the land. And so, in that upper marriage, Israel is obviously the bride to God, who is the groom. But in the lower marriage, it's reversed for Israel. Israel is the groom to the land, 
which is the bride. And so the first fruits topic that begins this portion concerns the lower marriage and the blessings and the curses are the vows of the upper marriage. And so we're I'm going to go into how it is that the land is the bride of Israel. But before we do that, let's ask what these two weddings are doing together here in this portion. So here's a really important idea in Scripture. God's marriage to Israel, the upper marriage, is reflected by Israel's marriage to the land, the lower marriage. And so I'm using the word reflect in a literal sense here. The land is a kind of mirror for Israel in the same way that a bride is a mirror for a husband. And the husband sees in the bride not only a reflection of himself, but also a reflection of his relationship with God. He looks at his bride and he sees a certain relationship there between them. And that relationship he's seeing between them is a reflection of the relationship the husband has with God. And so if he's despising his wife, there's a problem in his relationship with God there. When things are going well between Israel and God, life will go well for Israel in the land, which will be bountifully productive, very fruitful. And the reverse is also true. And this portion has much about how the land will reflect this higher relationship. God is being very clear here about how the land is meant to reflect his relationship with Israel. And so a huge number of the blessings and curses in this chapter, for example, are actually centered on the land and the productivity of the land and the land welcoming the people or spitting them out. God is making a very clear connection here between his relationship with Israel and Israel's relationship to the land. And so as an aside here, we see in Scripture a similar idea to Israel's marriage to the land and the idea that the nations are to be a bride to Israel, right? In the same way that Israel is married to the land, in the same way. And I don't really hear the rabbis talk about this. It's not a very popular subject, I would suspect. But... In the same way, Israel is like the groom to the nations, which are like a bride to Israel. And I think this, that marriage, Israel's marriage to the nations, is the more important of the two. It's more important than Israel's relationship to the land. But they're very similar in a way. And so, okay, we have these two weddings here in this portion, and... The first one is talking about Israel's marriage to the land. Well, we'll we'll explore why we're calling the land a bride as we keep exploring in the verse here. And so to start with, Rabbi Trugman points out that the very first word in the portion is vahaya, and it will be, in the phrase, and it will be that when you come into the land. And so remember that the sages say that when a portion or section of a significant section of a portion, begins with vahaya, that's lashon simcha, the language of joy, lashon simcha. And so this portion starts with the language of joy. Well, to be honest, 
the 98 curses don't seem so joyful here, but we should think of this portion as the putting forth of the vows that will be said when they get into the land. And so the reciting of vows can be very heavy at times, but overall, the occasion of the wedding is one of our greatest joys, and it gives us such pleasure to even listen to a couple reciting these vows and making these promises to each other. It's really a joyful, it's maybe the highlight of the wedding. And so, it's the language of joy, the hayah. Next, in our marriage connections here, Rabbi Trugman points out that the word tavo has bo at its root, the idea of coming into or going into when you come into the land. And the marriage connection here, says Rabbi Trugman, is that bo is also the root for one of the words for marital relations, the word bia, bet yud aleph hey, or bia. In other words, Israel entering the land has language connections to the idea of marital relations between a husband and wife, according to Rabbi Trugman. And so the land is the body, the home that surrounds the groom and becomes echad with him for fruitfulness and eternal life, meaning the formation of of a new generation and then another generation, right? That's eternal life in, in the human scale, I guess. And so moving forward, let's also note here that the Hebrew words for land and earth or dirt are, are feminine. These are the words Eretz and Adama, both of which are feminine in Hebrew. The word in our verse here is Eretz for land. And so remember that Hebraically, that which receives is feminine, and that which gives is masculine. It's just the way the language works. And so Israel sows the land with seed, Israel giving, the land taking, and the land is gifted with the ability to bring forth the fruit, which is the feminine gift to take the seed and bring forth the fruit. And, um, and so, on one level, that the female, the, the woman is able to take the seed of light and truth from the male and to nurture it faithfully and bring it out in, in a practical way in space and time in the physical world. And so I emphasize that word faithful there. She's able to faithfully nurture that which is developing within her. And um, it's an important concept, the idea of faith and faithfulness connected to femininity and to women. And so faithfulness is the essence of the test of pregnancy. Women are specially given a strong inherent pull toward faithfulness. This is not as strong in the male, but must be learned. You can be taught and can be learned. And so Rabbi Trugman points out that, interestingly, one of the ways the land is referred to rabbinically is as Eretz Zvi, the land of the deer. Zvi is deer. And the connection here 
to the idea of faithfulness is that Svi has the same gamatria as Emuna. They are both gamatria 102, 102. And so the land of Israel is the place of Emunah, place of the deer, right? Gamatria 102. It's the place of faith and faithfulness. And so walking out the light of truth in the darkness of physicality is the walk of Emunah, the walk of faith, the physical land, this human body we are given, this physical earth we are given, the marriages we are given. These are the spaces God designs for walking out our faith in him. And so these are also places of great testing. But this idea is that faith and faithfulness, they are connected to the woman and to the land, especially. And so all of us are to have faith. That's the challenge for all of us. Um, and, and indeed, there are some feminine aspects to all of us, male and female, which is one reason why our world is getting so confused with gender. If you look at within, you're going to be able to find both male and female aspects within you, but God has made you one gender, and that is your gender. But we both have aspects of receiving. We both have aspects of giving. And um, well, anyway, that's another story. So there's a reason we portray the earth as feminine, mostly, as Mother Earth. Women have a special connection to the earth and to their own bodies, and that they are gifted with being able to use their bodies as a kind of organ of perception in a stronger way than men. We might sometimes call this idea intuition or empathy or most tellingly, I think, a, a gut feeling. The gut is associated with the lower body and the woman has a special connection there to the intelligence that is centered there in the gut and also the intelligence centered in the heart. But with this strong connection, this lower body connection, this greater physical connection, in fact, the woman also receives a challenge, a special feminine challenge. And that is that the emotions are also centered in both the gut and the heart, the lower part of the body. It's where the emotions are centered. And so along with the woman's intuitive gift, comes the vast challenge for her to master her emotions so that they don't master her. Well, okay, so we've seen a number of connections between the land and the bride, and we've seen that this verse and uh, this portion are talking about a beginning of relationship between Israel and the bride of the land, as well as a marriage to God at the two mountains. And we've seen that women in general are gifted with a deep connection to their bodies and to the earth. Well, let's bring the topic back around to the calendar now. We are being prepared now for a marriage to come. Again, it's our own marriage to God in Tishrei. And as we read this portion, which is meant to be a joyful one, we can take heart that the pathway to marital bliss and marital blessing is clearly laid out before us in the Torah. If we love God, as Moses says, and if we carefully follow his commandments, as Moses says, our upcoming marriage 
will be wonderfully fulfilling and fruitful. Well, one last idea here on marriage. The opening of this portion is emphasizing one of the most important foundation stones for a solid marriage. Constant gratitude. And so now I'm, I'm no expert in marriage. Um, I'm not married. But I can see what's written here in the Word. This portion, focused on two weddings, has at its, as its first and guiding topic the commandment to bring first fruits, which is all about continually humbling ourselves in gratitude, thankfulness. If a husband does the work of maintaining constant gratitude for his wife, if he constantly humbles himself by admitting to the great contribution she makes to his life, the fact that he couldn't be where he is without her constant support, he's going to relate to her with love and joy and peace. And the same is true for the wife concerning her husband. Constant humility and gratitude is vital for our ultimate success in all of our relationships, really. And it's vital for Israel's success in the land, too. Recall this famous verse, again from Micah 6. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So the adverb connected to walking with God is humbly, walk humbly. And so a big part of that constant walk of humility is that we take every step with gratitude, thanking him. God isn't just giving Israel busy work by requiring them to bring first fruits to Jerusalem. He's focused, and it's a big Endeavor, by the way. It could take a couple of weeks to walk there, celebrate there. A couple of weeks back, you're talking about a whole month of your life. Just because you got a handful of figs or grapes, um, this is not a small thing, this offering of first fruits. And so what he's doing here is he's focusing them on a cornerstone of the flourishing of their relationship with him and a cornerstone of their thriving in the land, this constant walk of gratitude toward God. And for all of us, married or single, we have so much to be grateful for. If you are breathing, you should be grateful. I mean, what if we just took one second every day and just said, thank you, God, that I'm breathing. And if your eyes are working, you should be grateful. Let's, let's purpose in this time of tshuva to do better at cultivating a continual attitude of gratitude. We tend to fixate on the one bad thing and ignore the 50 good things. And that's partly for self-protection. So there are some good reasons to pay close attention to what looks like danger, right? The one bad thing. But there's Another very worldly reason we fixate on the one bad thing, a misplaced fear, a corrosive lack of trust in God, right? All these things are going well for me. All these things are my health, my whatever. All these things are going well for me, but I'm going to worry and fixate on that one little thing over there. So, okay, partly maybe you need to be concerned. Maybe there is a real danger there. But I think many times, really, it's just 
we're doubting. Is God going to provide for us? Is, is he going to take care of us? You know, and so there is, and that's subconscious a lot, I think, but there's an enemy that stands opposite to gratitude, and it is doubt. If we are constantly aware of the great goodness that God is pouring out on us continuously, right, just showering us with his blessing. If we're just constantly aware of that, there's no room for doubt to creep in. But if we let doubt fester and grow like a cancer in us, we will fixate on the possible dangers in our lives. And so, do you remember how the last portion ended? That was Kitetse. The final commands in that portion are to remember what Amalek did on the way out of Egypt and to blot out the name of Amalek continually. And so at first it seems confusing that Amalek is to be wiped out on the one hand, yet we are to make continual warfare against them. Now if Amalek is, is wiped out, how is it that he is cropping up over and over again, that we need to you know, continually defeat him? Well, the amazing answer, if you remember, we've talked about this once or twice, is that Amalek is equivalent to the enemy called doubt. D-O-U-B-T, doubt. Amalek has the same gematria as sofek, the Hebrew word for doubt. Both equal 240. And so no matter how strong we think we are, no matter how long we've walked with the Lord, we are still vulnerable to this enemy. So God emphasizes that we show Amalek no mercy. We don't entertain doubt. We simply smash it. The truth is that for any of us, Amalek will try to pop up anytime we suffer a severe blow, a diagnosis, a death, the collapse of a relationship, and our sense of justice rises up to say, this isn't fair. This isn't right. This shouldn't be happening to me. I'm basically doing things right. What more can I do? It's not supposed to work this way. How could a loving God allow me to go through this? Is God with me or not? And boom, Amalek suddenly seems to appear out of nowhere and attacks. And so we show Amalek no mercy. We don't reason with Amalek because he doesn't really live fully in the head, not entirely conscious. He's partly subconscious and partly he's tickling the negative emotions. We just get this feeling of unease and we don't quite know, you know where that's coming from. And that's, it's Amalek who's rising up probably in that moment. And so the rabbis say, Amalek lives in the neck, not quite up here, not quite down here, but sort of both. When we become aware of him, we simply deny him breath. We breathe no life into him, right? Don't put any words on that. Don't, um, don't give it any time. We give him no space to occupy in our lives. And so the bride is well-equipped for this battle because faithfulness is part of her DNA. 
But God also gives her, through the Torah, other tools, like the commandment that follows Amalek in the text, right? We've got Kitetse, the end of that, Amalek, what follows the beginning of Kitavo, first fruits, continual gratefulness. We fight Amalek with the continual humbling and thankfulness to God for the many, many blessings he bestows upon us daily. We can even start the morning with Modei Ani, thanking God for returning our soul to us and giving us one more day that we don't deserve. If we start our day saying, oh, you put my soul back in my body one more time. What a gift. Thank you. Then the rest of the day is icing on the cake and there's no foothold for Amalek in our lives. And Next, you know, after we say the Modeani, we turn to our spouse maybe and, and we thank God for all the good our spouse brings to us. And we've already set a solid foundation for the day before we've even gotten out of bed. Well, there's a lot more to say here about what is happening at Mount Gerizim and Ebal and what they're told to do there. The next layer down is to explore how what happens there represents the new covenant that is mediated by Yeshua rather than Moses. It's Joshua that leads the people to renew the covenant at these mountains, not Moses. But I think we'll come back to Ebal and Gerizim in one of the Tishrei Moedim teachings because there's a lot to explore there regarding the new covenant in that scene and there. So the last point I'll make here today, though, before we move to a focus on Yeshua, is that entering the land is not a one-time event. It's a constantly ongoing process. We enter the land every time Yeshua leads us to take a bit more of the territory of the flesh allotted to us. And so let me say that again. We enter the land every time our leader, Yeshua the Messiah, who is pictured by Joshua, leads us to take a bit more of the territory of the flesh allotted to us. And notice that under Joshua, Israel takes a bit more of the land and a bit more and a bit more. Every time he leads us to do that, it means that our relationship with God has deepened and our marriage has deepened. It's something that should be happening every year and every month and every week even, and even every day somehow. And it's an adventure. Every day is our wedding day if we are carefully walking with God and listening to how he's leading us deeper with him. We're always going further up and further in, as C.S. Lewis put it. Well, let's turn now to one more brief point about Yeshua in the light of today's discussion. And so let me ask this question. If we are being married to God, what is Yeshua's role here? How do we relate to Yeshua in this upcoming month of Tishrei? What role is he playing in this marriage process that is coming? Well, I know this kind of question gets a bit sticky quickly, right? We're getting these ideas of the Trinity and, well, he is God and, you know, all these, it gets a little bit messy um, quickly, but there's a foundation for answering such questions that we need to keep coming back to. And there's one that I've mentioned recently. And so I can't say that I completely understand what this verse is saying, but I think it points us 
in the right direction anyway. And it's the idea that we exist for God and from God, but we exist through Yeshua. We exist for God, but through Yeshua. Again, we exist for God, but we come to God, maybe we could say, through Yeshua. He is the only way to God. And so, listen again, but, but our goal there is to get to God. And so, listen again to this important verse from 1 Corinthians 8. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 1 Corinthians 8, 5 to 6. The focus of this marriage conversation, right, the focus of all this marriage stuff is God. And the vessel for that marriage is Yeshua. And so, yes, we welcome Yeshua in a new way, each Tishrei. And when we stand at the altar... It's Yeshua who stands with us as we are married again to God. He is a perfect reflection of the Father. When Yeshua speaks, it is the Father speaking through him. When he smiles, it is the Father smiling. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for listening. I have included an outline of this teaching below the video. May God make us a people who worry less about our reputation than we do about caring for people. May he bless us to be a people who think first of our obligations rather than our rights. May we be a constantly grateful people who understand that each day is a gift we don't deserve and who have always in mind that we are just stewards of all the great blessings he has given us. May we be a faithful people who give no place to Amalek in our lives. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.